episode 29 with writer Jacqueline Woodson. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with writer and MacArthur Genius Grant fellow Jacqueline Woodson. Hailing from Brooklyn, New York, Woodson's work reflects the prose, poetry, and undying possibilities that exist within the lives of young Black people. Often including themes that land her books on censored reading lists, Woodson challenges readers to consider our own relationships to the complexities and contradictions of life. The daughter of a devout Jehovah's Witness, it was Jacqueline's mother who seeded her desire to become a writer, requiring her to check out the maximum number of books allowed on her library card every week. By age seven, Jacqueline knew she wanted to create literary worlds which mirrored her own as a young brown girl in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And she went on to do just that, winning multiple awards many times over for her craft, including the Hans Christian Andersen Award, Newbery Honors, the Coretta Scott King Award, and the National Book Award in Young People's Literature. She has served as the Young People's Poet Laureate and the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature at the Library of Congress. But in the spirit of Jacqueline's adversity to adjectives, I could go on, but I won't. In today's conversation, we'll explore themes of parenting in a pandemic, the techniques and tools of a storyteller, Black economic wealth across generations, and the promise of safety young people bring to this world. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, shout us out over on Instagram at Twitter at Black Imagination, and if you enjoy this content, leave us a review over on Apple Podcast. We love to hear from you. Now, if you aspire or may even dare to dream, light a candle and put on your headphones, because today you're going to hear why Woodson commands these hallowed halls of Black imagination. First of all, Miss Jacqueline Woodson, thank you so much. Um, and welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination podcast. Um, it, I'm just honored and it's such a pleasure. I have been um, sitting with your work for a while. Unbeknownst to me, I actually had one of your books on my shelf um, that I actually read this weekend. And I would venture to say it's been at least a decade since I sat and read a book cover to cover, um, which was which was another Brooklyn for those of you listening. Um, it's such a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, but first of all, thank you and welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored and psyched to be here. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so, like, just to get started, like. Who is Jacqueline Woodson? Like in her own words, like how did she come to be? Uh, I would say that's that's such a great question. You know, I don't think I've been asked that before. I um, Jacqueline Woodson is a writer, and um, from from the map, you know, from the womb, I feel like I, I I've known I wanted to be a writer since I was seven. Writing is such a huge part of everything I do, you know, um, including how I mother, 
Um, when I, I, I think of um, what, what I want my kids to have in the world in terms of the literature that's gonna reflect them in terms of the literature where they can see you know, parts of their family and their lives and the lives of other people. The, you know, we talk about Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who was an, acad who was an academic, she's retired now. Um, and she talked about the importance of young people having mirrors and windows in their literature, mirrors so that they see reflections of themselves and windows so that they see into other worlds. And for me, when I think of myself in third person as <laughs> Jacqueline Woodson, I think of that person who has always wanted to create that, always wanted to see first that, uh, the reflection of myself in literature and the people I love, and then understand other words, other worlds through literature. So I think that's who I am, like that's the blood and the bone. Um, and I think that, um, I don't know. I think I, I just, uh, I'm, a, I'm another human walking through this world, trying to make it through another day. Um, so in that way, I think Jacqueline Woodson is like every other walking body, just trying to keep living and every other walking black body um, with another layer of trying to survive added on to the first layer. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but that is like, but that is a, a body that has, in a way, answered a call, you know, and looking at your body of work, I mean, like pretty much publishing a title every year since like 1990, like that's a calling, like that is a stepping into, um, like, and you said you, 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 um, first knew you wanted to be a writer at seven, but like, who was that first person to bet on you? Like, who was the first person to give you that opportunity to see yourself? You know, to see myself, I would have to say it was Virginia Hamilton and um, John Steptoe. John Steptoe wrote a book called Stevie. And um, one line in the book is like, you know, his mama kept calling him, you know, his name was Stephen, but his mama kept calling him Stevie. My name is Robert, but my mama don't call me Roberty. And I just remember, you know, reading that and being like, wait, because it was these chocolate kids and chocolate adults in this book, and they were talking the way my people talked. And I was like, what is this? And how did this book get into the world? Um, because that just was not the literature surrounding me. Um, and so I think reading that and seeing that part of myself in it was amazing. So so it wasn't necessarily a person, but an author who, who shined that light on me and said, yeah, I talk like you do. I look like you do. You can do this too. But also my mom, I would say, even though she was a woman who migrated to the city from the South and her, her mission was to raise us, to get us out of her house, to get us jobs, hopefully with pensions. Like she wasn't trying to raise any artists. And at the same time, we had to go to the library every day after school because it was like childcare, right? My mom worked full time. A lot of public school kids went from school to the library between 5.45 and six o'clock. Their parents picked them up when they got off the B63 bus, you know, coming from work. But that was a safe space for young people who had working parents. And, and so, and in, in the library back in the day, you had to be quiet, right? We had mm. these mean ass librarians <laughs> who, who were always black too, right? So they knew that they were looking out for us in this certain kind of way. Um, but you had to do your homework and you had to read. And my mother made sure because we can afford, you know, buying hardcover books, we had the um, 
Childcraft and the World and Psych World Book Encyclopedia. Those were the two sets of and all our religious literature. But um, but we had to have active library cards, and we had to take out the maximum amount amount of books a week, and we had very limited TV, and we you know every time we said we were bored, my mom was like, "Go read." You know, so so even she, you know, so even though she wasn't saying grow up to be a writer, she was giving me the tools, right? Because that's how you learn to write by reading. So I think um, I th I'm sure for a long time she was like, "What fresh hell is this?" Every time I said I wanted to be a writer, but at the same time, here she was saying, "Here are books, here are mirrors, here are windows." You know, here's a world where only literature exists and television doesn't. So it's interesting. Wow, you know, I I forgot about even my library, you know, growing up in elementary school, like how much we used it. I mean, used it all the time. Um reading 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 all those like Ramona Quimby books and like The Hardy Boys and like Choose Your Own Adventure, like all of those things. And so but it also makes me think about, you know, what are, you know, children looking at when they come home? from school now and like in what ways did you grow up that you um have brought into your parent uh, mm -hmm. skills and mm -hmm. what did you leave behind <laughs> i i definitely brought um literature right um you know my kids i wish they read more um but i i am um pushing against the walls of social media and, and, and uh, you know, entertainment in their pocket all the time in a way that we didn't have. Um, I, I remember, we don't have television in our house in Brooklyn. And I remember um, we had cable, we had a television in, um, in the in the rec room in the basement part of the house and and no one ever watched it. You know, at first I had moved it, I moved it. We had like a TV room and it was like, that's where you go downstairs, watch TV. And no one ever went there. I moved it all the way to the basement and put it on the wall. And it was kind of like a gaming TV system. And then I got rid of the cable and my kids didn't notice for like eight months. And I was like, okay, we don't need this TV. <laughs> so so um, it wasn't until the pandemic and we've been up here in Brewster that we really started watching more TV, but all also up here because there is so much less to do. Um, there's more reading going on. Um, and so we have, we've always done the family read where we choose a book that the whole family reads. And, and um, now my daughter, actually the last book we did was Mouse and she's at, you know, Howard. So she's, um, she's like, oh, I'll do it from college, which was nice, right? Um, but we started it with reading to them when they were young as a family. And then each person got their own copy of a book. Um, I definitely left um, organized religion behind. You know, I grew up Jehovah's Witness and I, I left that um, behind, although spirituality is a lot with me still. And I, you know, every night at dinner, we have to say what we're grateful for and stuff like that. But I, I you know, I left um, the belt behind, right? you know, and the switch. So, and the ways that we were punished as kids, you know, um, you know, I left corporal punishment behind. Um, and, and, and really, I, you know, I grew up getting my behind beat. And again, my family was from the South and, and that's how they raised their kids to behave. And it, it's interesting to, as an adult, look back on it and, and understand that it came out of, uh, um, 
it came out of a culture of enslavement, right? That, you know, when we go back to it, the slave, the uh, masters of enslaved people beat the enslaved people and as a way of making them behave. And those enslaved people learned that that was it. And, you know, interpreted the Bible through the master's eyes of spare the rod and lose the child and, and thinking that the rod was the bullwhip or the belt or the switch. And, and really, you know, when I became a parent, breaking that, like, I'm going to have to explain a lot more than I wanted to. I'm going to have to not say because I said so, you know, and I'm going to have to learn to parent with intention. And so, so that was something that I left behind and, and learned a lot about myself and about the world in leaving it behind. I mean, you just said so much. I'm going to I'm going to try to make notes to come back to her, particularly the 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 concept of um, traumas that we don't own, that we stick with and perpetuate on each other. So someone please remind me of that. Um, But I kind of want to circle back to like this 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 beginning, like. In Brooklyn, um, the child of um, migrants from the South and Jehovah's Witness. Like, what was it like growing up Jehovah's Witness? And I know, you know, you 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 left it behind, but how did that shape your worldview? It's, it's so interesting because when I wrote Brown Girl Dreaming was when I really started investigating it. And we grew up not celebrating any holidays. We grew up not pledging to the flag. We grew up not, you know, we were conscientious objectors. We didn't go to war. Um, and and so much of that, we didn't celebrate birthdays. So, uh, um, and and the, the mantra was you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And I think, um, as a kid, a lot of, and, and the other thing was my mom really didn't let us wear anything other, <laughs> excuse me, than cotton or linen. Like she was very clear about the fabrics we wore. And I think that was about, um, and you know, I was growing up in the era of polyester. So, so, so I, we were always just a step out because we, um, we were devout. So, you know, Bible study on Monday night, ministry, um, uh, Bible study at home on Monday night to get prepared for Bible study at the Kingdom Hall on Tuesday night. Um, I forgot what Wednesday night was, but then Thursday was ministry schools. Um, Friday was Watchtower study. Saturday was going out in field service and Sunday was at the Kingdom Hall. So, so there was a lot of religion. And I just remember as a kid, you know, you'd be in the middle of a game of tag, a Coco Olivio, hide the belt. And then it's like, come, Hope, Dell, Jackie, Roman, come inside, get ready for Kingdom Hall. You know, when it's still daylight out in the summer and, and the fun is just about to kick off. Um, but um, I, I don't pledge to the flag. <laughs> I still don't pledge the flag for a whole other reasons, you know, and that, that was something that was not hard for me to shake, right? I had never, I understood what I was saying in saying I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, you know, I understood why that felt uncomfortable for me given the plight of black folks in this country. Um, I, I understood not going to the war because I grew to war because I also grew up you know, during the era, the end of the era of Vietnam and listening to people like um, Muhammad Ali talk about why he wasn't going to kill brown people in Vietnam, you know, and, and looking at the wars we're fighting and the color of the people um, that we're fighting. 
um, you know, in terms of holidays, I, 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 I think that we didn't celebrate them because of the religion and because of the economic part of it, right? We weren't growing up with a lot of money and it was much easier to not have to struggle and go into debt to celebrate these holidays. So for me, thinking about the holidays is from a less capitalistic approach and a more thoughtful approach as an adult. Um, what else did I, uh, so I also grew up Muslim, right? My, when I, when my um, uncle returned from prison, he had converted to the nation of Islam. And so that practice became a part of the practices in our house because, you know, God forbid we don't have enough religion, but I still, <laughs> I still don't eat pork. I still understand, you know, the importance of Mecca. Like there, there are a lot of um, parts of that that I feel like I still hold on to, but um and you know the not eating pork, of course, it was it's considered, um, you know, an unclean animal. I mean, meat is a whole other complicated thing for me, but um, but but it was so indoctrinated that I can't. Like I, you know, I think if someone said, "Here's a ham sandwich," do that, I don't know if I could do it. Like it was. I remember my uncle. Um, there was some boiled, sliced boiled ham, and it had this like little rainbow iridescence in the fat. Sometimes that happened. And my uncle said, that's the part of the pig they couldn't kill. And it was the rat. <laughs> I, I was like, it is such a rat for me. So, and then, you know, we're in um, Mallorca and they have the Ibedico, they have, you know, like, and everyone's eating like this um, acorn fed pig from, and it looks so good. I'm like, I can't. I can't. So, so it is interesting. I mean, you know, because it's so um, um, imprinted in me so much of um, my religious childhood that there are places, even looking at the state of the world now, it's hard not to think about the book of Revelations, you know, um, or Octavia Butler for that matter. But so it's, it's interesting. But I also think that like religion and particularly, you know, Christianity, and I, I, I can't speak to, um, you know, Islam, but there is a, one, a storytelling element that is so heavy in that tradition. And then also a very romantic, almost indulgent use of words and vocabulary. And I can't help but imagine that that somehow shaped, began to shape the way you think about text and like the power of words. It's such a, a text-based religion. You know, we have a lot of text that we use and cite from and have to memorize. And we it's also performative in that women have to give six-minute talks. So you have to write your talk, take it on stage, give do the skit. So you're learning from a young age how to present in public, <laughs> you know, how to craft story and and craft um, um, social situations that will be both entertaining and um, educational, right? So it's like going to visit a sister who hasn't been to the Kingdom Hall in a while. Well, let's talk about it. Let's look at you know psalms 5 4 or whatever i don't remember my books of the bible and really have a conversation and not only um deconstruct certain parts of the bible but really engage by the end of the narrative have changed the character which is mm. right? 
Interesting. You know, actually, yeah. and and through, throughout this, I'm going to quote a couple of things uh, from from your books, particularly another Brooklyn because it's fresh on the brain. Um, but you know, you you mentioned this like women have to give like a, a six minute like talk, which is interesting. And you know, in another Brooklyn, you know, it's the story of four young women growing up in Brooklyn. But towards the beginning, you have this, um, you set the scene of August, who's the protagonist, um, sitting in church and looking at these daughters that the, of, of the pastor. And you say, as their father preached, I watched them, wondering what it was like to walk the edge of holy. For God so loved the world, their father would say, he gave his only begotten son. But what about his daughters, I wondered. What did God do with his daughters? And so from that, I wonder, at what point in your life did you realize being a girl or being a woman meant something different? Like you had to move through the world differently. There was a different set of requirements for you. Um, the gaze for you was very different than your male counterparts. Like when when did that happen that schism you know I I think it happened um at different points in my life definitely um in the kingdom hall you know one question I was always asking women were not allowed to be on the stage alone they had to be on the stage with other women um and it was only for six minutes they weren't allowed to give sermons um and so from a young age, I'm like, but I want to, I want to be on that stage alone. I want to wear a suit. I want to give that talk. And my grandmother was like, no, women don't do that. And it was, you know, I didn't know enough to question why don't women do that? Or how did we decide that there was this, um, you know, binary going on? And, um, and, you know, I didn't have that language yet, but I did know there was a deep unfairness to that. And also in terms of the gays, and I talk about this in another Brooklyn, how, you know, young cis girls get watched from the minute they start developing, even before that, and how hyper aware you are of the attention, you know, and you know, the attention is not healthy attention just because of how it makes you feel. Um, and at the same time, you know, you, you, you're excited about the attention because it's like, look how beautiful I am. Someone's looking at me, you know? So there is that, um, there is that kind of divide. And, um, and, and I think I didn't even know that boys weren't being looked at that way because my younger brother got a lot of attention. And, you know, he looked very different than the rest of the family. You know, he's a, he's a beautiful kid. Um, and, and he was always getting attention, not only like, how do you connect to this family, but, but also, you know, older women approaching him when he was a young teen. So, so there was always that, like watching my younger brother negotiate that kind of attention while I was negotiating other kind of attention. But, um, I think I was dense in this way that I wasn't like, that's what happened to girls, that's what happened to boys because I was seeing it everywhere. Um, and I remember the first time my friend Maria, I must've been about 13 and we would always sit along the curb and you know play games in the streets or you know dig into the tar or do something. Um, but we were outside and, and I had on a pair of white carpenter pants and, 
And I would go to sit down and she's like, no, you have to put down a brown paper bag first. She's like, you can't have a dirty butt anymore. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was like this tomboy and my butt was always dirty because I was always sitting in the street or like, you know, I was so rough and tumble. And she's like, no, you're, you can't do that anymore. Like now we have to be, you know, different. Like we have to present ourselves different. I was like, why? Like I got my Pumas, I got my carpenter, I'm good. But it was so interesting to have that moment of um, that divide. And I was talking to my friend Ellery, um, I was black and queer. And he was saying that he remembered being 10 and he would always wear these tight shorts. And his friend saying to him, who was the same age, you can't wear tight shorts anymore. And he's like, he was so, he's like, what's wrong with my shorts? But it is that moment where the world shows you who you're supposed to be, right? And 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 you're never ready for it. Um, and, and half the time you're already rejecting it. And that's why they have to put it in your face that way. So so I think it, it, it came, it continues to come. Like, I don't think that stops. Like, I think right now we're in a really interesting place because um, young people are pushing back against all of it, right? They're pushing back against gender. They're pushing back against pronouns. They're pushing back against how one should walk through the world and the expectation. And I think that for me, that's so exciting. And I wish I had had that that kind of strength and, and um, energy behind me as a young person. Yeah, and you know that that scene also also instantly like made me think of like well one these four women young women in Brooklyn, but then also these four preachers' daughters, which then made me think of the four girls who were bombed in Alabama at the 16th Street mm-hmm. Church. Um, and then, it, and then I thought about like waiting to exile, <laughs> and, then I, mm-hmm. and I'm like, these groups of four, right? Like this idea of and sisterhood, Nina yeah, yeah, yeah Nina four, women. four women. And yeah. so, well, one, I don't know. Have you thought about like what what does four women like just structurally like what does that provide for? I think for me, it, it's it's easy. with three women. There's more of a chance of that kind of ruffle energy, not necessarily a sexual ruffle, but, but like, you know, the competition um, in the um, tripod, whereas with four, there feels like more of a balance and, you know, it's an even number and then people can pair off and become besties or not. But, but, and then as we start losing people, we still have people to work with. If I had um, only had three women, uh, it would have been a very different dynamic once we lose the people that we lose in that, in that mm. narrative. Mm. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that. Cause there's some like nuts and bolts of just like mm-hmm. care, like novel structuring that I, I want to tap into. Cause I think that, you know, many of us, including myself don't understand that there really is like a framework that you're kind of fleshing out, right? There's a skeleton, you know, that you begin to flesh out over time and in, in novel writing, but but getting to, you know, the work, like, what was it about, like, the young adult mind or that that time in history? I think you spoke a little bit about it before, that you decided that you wanted to write specifically to. Um, 
I don't know who it was. Um, Madeline Lingle said, when you write, you should write remembering the child you were because the essence of childhood doesn't change. You know, even though the fashion and the technology and all of that stuff changes, the essence of what we want as young people do, doesn't change. We want to be loved. We want to belong. You know, we want to fit in somehow. You know, we don't want our family to be crazy. Like, you know, we want to grow up and be safe. We want to have our dreams come true. Like, and I think that's where I start with so many of my novels, that place of what does my character want and how are they going to get it? And I, and ha having written so many books targeted at young people and having this place of having been young once and also now being older, it was, it made sense for me to really investigate those two realms in that narrative. And a lot of, you know, I do it a little bit in Red at the Bone too, but um, I really wanted to look from an adult perspective at these four girls um, and really investigate how someone, how people stop having friends, right? I, I, I've heard so many, you know, especially black women say, oh, I don't trust women or, you know, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't keep a whole lot of women around me. And I'm like, but you gotta have your girls. Like, you know, you gotta have your village. And, um, and I didn't understand that. And so when I don't understand something, I start writing to understand it. Like how do people get divided? How do we move away from each other? How do we lose friends? Um, and, um, and who were we before that? So that's how I got to, Saga to Sylvia, Angela, Gigi, and August. But 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 also like you know just writing for young people you know in general, I think from your 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 previous comment, it sounds like it's also a time um, where the human being is really encountering the world for the first time, and. You know, from from reading another Brooklyn and and looking at some of your other work, like a lot of times parents don't know what to say to their children at that time, um, and and that can be quite caustic to to you know for most of your life up until that point really express yourself in the way that you wanted to, you know, given your parents' constraints, and then to be really confronted with the world for the first time, the world outside of your house, and how that measures up, right? Because there are a lot of things that happen in homes that are not normal, and you realize that when you step out. And so, you know, what you've done is kind of be it like a stopgap in a way, like provide you know, a space for, you know, young adults to explore some issues. And, and what, what, what was the decision to really explore issues like, you know, gender, sexuality, um, you know, even like parents coming out, like for young adults, you know, that was, that was something that was quite, has been quite controversial actually. Yes. Yes. I know. It's, it's so interesting because, you know, I stay banned and that's okay with me. <laughs> um, I know. I What did they, they just banned red at the bone in Texas. You know, they took it off the curriculum and I was like, what? I mean, you know, um, if you come softly got challenged because it's a story of an interracial relationship, like people, people come for me all the time. Um, uh, but it's interesting. I think that I, I believe in the village of raising children because I think one thing that that nuclear family does is, as you said, you know, it insulates and isolates the crazy. So 
that you think your your family, everything that's happening there is this stuff that's supposed to be happening. And then you step outside in the world and you say, wait a second. Um, and so often it's too late. I think um, one thing that parents forget is being young, right? And, and in doing so, what we want is to bring our backstory to our kids, right? And our, like, if we wanted to be a musician, our kid has to be a musician. If we wanted to be a writer, our kid has to be, you know, the things that we feel that here's a second chance and, and being so um, concentrated on that second chance that you don't remember what it was like to be 12 and growing breasts for the first time and how uncomfortable that felt in your classroom or not growing them I and everybody else was and coming home in a bad mood and brokenhearted and, you know, not even knowing how to begin that conversation, but a parent who's like seeing the whole child and, and remembering their childhood can bring that to it. So I do think it is, um, it is heartbreaking for me that we forget who we were as young people and that we forget what challenges we had as young people, because that is, that is an inroad to talking to our young people. Right. Um, so, so when one thing about writing another Brooklyn and, um, Red at the Bone especially, I Red at the Bone is a mom who gets pregnant at 15, 16, and, and it's, you know, it's her daughter who's now her age when she got pregnant. But um, but writing it, you know, I went into myself at that age. I never got pregnant at that age, but I knew what it was like to to want all this stuff and you know to want it all and and then um and then I was raising a I had a 15 year old daughter at the time and so watching her negotiate a very seemingly different world but with the same pushbacks right the jealous friends you know the um the gays I remember we were coming out of um Trader Joe's when she was nine and and my daughter is tall and starting to develop and and um and very attractive and and so, but she was on a scooter and her little brother was beside her and he was on one of those scooter bikes. And they're about 10 feet ahead of me. She's nine. And I'm like loaded down with these Trader Joe's bags. And this guy who must've been about 23, he's like, yo, baby, I like you on that scooter. <gasps> and, <laughs> and I just dropped my bags and I'm this crazy black woman screaming down Atlantic Avenue. I'm like, she's nine effing years old. She's not, he's like, I was just, I was just saying she was, I'm like, I was just saying she, I liked her scooter. I'm like, it's against the law for you to say any effing thing to her. And I'm screaming and, and we're by, there's a um, Barney's a clothing store and, um, and there's a black guard in there and he comes out and he, he, he checked the situation and he knew exactly what had happened. Like he completely got it. He understood it. Maybe he had a child, but he was like, I, I just clocked everything that just happened. And it was so interesting. I mean, it was great to have an ally, but, and then the guy and his boys got in their car and drove away fast because they knew that I was crazy and that, you know, they had crossed the line, but it was, it was so interesting because, because, you know, of course that triggered for me, the attention I got as a young person and also seeing the way in which the world hasn't changed. Um, so I, I don't know how far I got away from your question, but I do think that in writing literature can be that tool for young people to see themselves again, right? Or see the world and imagine it differently, um, you know, um, and imagine, like, yeah, this is how your family is acting inside all of this insanity, but that's not necessarily the world, right? And so like, if you can't step outside of 
your your real life, you can step into this book and imagine something different and better. Like you can imagine that you're not the only kid whose mom is a lesbian. You can imagine, you know, and you can see that you're not the only queer kid. You might be the only queer kid in your school, in your church, and but you're not the only queer kid in the world. Look at all these narratives of other people telling your story. And I think that's a really um, great and healthy beginning for young people who don't have that kind of access to the conversations they need to be having, either with their parents or with their friends or with their pastors. So so I, for me, I think that books are that kind of salvation. And I'm trying to write into that salvation because it was the salvation I wanted as a young person. I wanted to see something different. Yeah. And it, it provides, and I, it provides a vocabulary, like it provides mm-hmm. a vocabulary because if we don't have the words to speak to our perception, right, what we perceive, then it, then it goes invisible, right? Like we can't, if you can't name it, if you can't pinpoint it, then it's a slippery sliding around, you know, of trying to get at the thing. Um, and so speaking of mm-hmm. vocabulary, how now, I know you're a master vocabularyist, but like, but like, how do you how do you shift that vocabulary, like just technically to like speak to a younger audience, or do you? Oh goodness, that's such a good question. I don't think I shift the vocabulary. Um, I shift the tone. Um, so when I'm writing for younger people it's told from, and the point of view. So um, Another Brooklyn is an adult book because the person telling the story is in her thirties and sister has lived, right? When I'm writing for young people, um, they are, what they know is that age where they are. And so the person telling the story is 15 and they don't know what it's like to be 30. So they're telling it from that perspective of being 15 or 12 or 10 or seven. Um, and if it was going to be an adult book, it would be uh, 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 you know, an adult looking back on being seven, looking back on being 15. But the language, you know, I, I'm very, I'm a minimalist, so my language is fair. I remember um, Ta-Nehisi Coates and I traded books and he had just, he had given me a galley of the water dancer and I gave him a galley of red at the bone. He says, baby, he's like, oh, you trying to write one of those books, Negro's gonna finish, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Facts. Actually, I can attest because, because Jeffrey Stewart's A New Negro is still on my shelf a quarter through and I finished your book in one sitting on Saturday. <laughs> And it was such a beautiful minimalism. It, I mean, you did not spare a word. It was like, mm, it was just like tight, you know? <laughs> so, so good. Sorry, I, I hopped all up in, in your reply. But I, I can attest, it's true. And there is something to Thank finishing you. the book. And mm-hmm. I was left, mm-hmm. I was left stuck. I was stuck. I just, I was stuck. But anyway, um... But but speaking about like so it sounds like and it's also very interesting. It sounds like it's not necessarily like a shift in vocabulary, but like a shift in tone and perspective, like a shift of limit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like a shift of yeah. like how far you see. But it's it's very exactly. interesting. And we're gonna send you a copy of this podcast, but your voice actually changed. I don't know if you noticed <laughs> when you started to speak about speaking as uh, a young adult, your voice your 
entire like voice change. It's like almost like a different That's language. So funny. So it's really interesting. Um, but it's and then also thinking about just um, you know writing and using words to see, like how has writing, which which we'll get into specifically, but like how has writing allowed you to see more clearly over time, right? Because you, you spoke earlier a bit about, you know, you write into your own voids, right? Like you have a question and so then you write about it. But how has writing and the, the process and the practice of writing allowed you to see and understand life more clearly it over is, time? Oh man, I like to think I'm very clear all of these books later, but you know, ask my beloved, you might get a different answer. But um, I, I, and it, I'm just going to start with an example. When I wrote Behind You, um, I, it started, um, I was pregnant with my daughter and the towers came down and we lost friends when that happened, you know, 9-11. And, and we, it was very hard to know how to grieve, you know, because first it was like, are they missing? Or are they dead? Like, and then not having any bodies. And um, and then just having that hole where a body had been and that life had been. Uh, and so I started, I had written a book called If You Come Softly and um, the um, one of the main characters dies at the end and, um, and, and behind you, he's uh, walking through the world as a ghost. And so, um, and I wrote that book because I was asking the question, what happens when we die? Do we even know we're dead? And, and how you know, how do the ancestors move with us? And how do the new ancestors move with us? And by the end of writing that book, there was something calmer to my grief. You know, I, I felt like I understood, I had um, figured out for myself, not only how to grieve, but how to come to peace with the dead, you know, and the loss. Um, and so, and and that I take into the rest of my life, right? This understanding that the ancestors do walk with us, that um, that even though a person dies, doesn't mean they leave us completely, and that they leave something behind for us to keep on moving. Whether it's a new friendship, someone we meet, you know, at the funeral, someone we grow closer to because of this loss, or whatever that thing is. Um, and so, I think that with each book that happens, um, with another Brooklyn, I wanted to understand, um, I wanted to understand again, death. My I had lost my mother um, and I wanted to understand gentrification, <laughs> uh, Columbusing. Um, and so, uh, and, and I wanted to put on the map a place that existed with people in it, people who loved, who died, who thrived. And that was Bushwick from 1970 to 1990. And so I dedicate to the, the book to Bushwick in memory because I remember listening to um, an NPR um, interview and this woman was making tequila. And at one point, I think it was Brian Lair said, it's like the Bushwick of tequila. And, and, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, Bushwick has become this very specific type of place. Um, and, and people are talking about discovering it and not realizing that it was there before them, you know, be it the Lenape or be it the Blacks and Latinos who lived there. Um, and so I really wanted to, and then when I started researching the Bushwick of my childhood, 
everything was about the ghetto and the fires and the gangs. And I was like, this is the outside gaze. And if I don't put this down, it's the reflection of that the memory of this is going to always be from an outside gaze. And so, um, and so, so in another Brooklyn, everything about Bushwick is real nonfiction. And then the fiction is the story of the four girls. And then the poetry is the, 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 the language and the, um, the white space. And so it's three books in one, whether, even though it's this tiny, it, and each book is very intentional. You know, each story is very intentional. Um, but again, it was, I was mad. Like, I was like, how dare you take my, the neighborhood of my childhood and make it into something else and, and try to claim it. And because this is what has, yeah, you know I mean, you know, from Tulsa to Rosewood to on, like, you know, our, our, our histories have been plundered and renamed. And, and I didn't want that to happen. So it's, um, and by the end of writing another Brooklyn, I, my, that was, I've done my work, <laughs> you know, I have written my, my space into history and the space of my people. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. And as you speak, like, it just makes me think of one, the importance of just telling your story, like, and writing in into space and like making your mark. Um, because the, the step of capital, um, and the step of, um, colonization, you know, has, has to render, has to render your lived experience one of one needing to be saved from, right? One of like, one of betterment, one of um, revitalization. Um, and if there is not, a, if there's not a, a two by four stuck in the window before it closes, it'll just shut down, right? And so your yes. book kind of like just jars the window just a little bit before they before they shut oh, that's it down. So beautiful. But it also makes me think about like you know, how historically black and brown people, like literally it was written into law that they were not allowed to read or write and it was illegal to actually teach them how to read or write. And so what other um, stories would thwart, right, this, the the American uh, expansion westward, um, the American um, industry of slavery, if there were people there, right, who mm -hmm. were able to counter that narrative to like, like, you know, just stick a little fork in it um, to just yeah. trouble the waters just mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, but you also you kind of mentioned Tulsa, and I know you bring it up in um, in Red, Red and, and the Bone. Bone. Yeah, but also in another Brooklyn, um, page 54, for those of you listening, um, it says the government, you're, so you're speaking about August going back to Tennessee um, to a plot of land that her family formerly owned, well, at least a part of it, or a large swath of it, but that now has been kind of taken over by the government. Um, and you say the government owns the pecan trees now. What had once been my family's has been taken by the government. Um, and that's also a bit of a, a double meaning, right? Because August's um, uncle has died in Vietnam. Um, but then also in Red at the Bone, you speak about the precarious nature of generational wealth mm -hmm. um, in black communities. And it's interesting. It's something that I've also seen in my own life and my lifetime with like my grandfather's, you know, of course we can read, think and do. Of course, even what one can accomplish in one's lifetime is incredible, but it's what you plan for 
afterwards, mm-hmm. right? Where there's always this kind of siphoning away. It happened both on my maternal and paternal side where there were just not plans made for what mm-hmm. was to happen. You know, I think about Aretha Franklin who died without a will. And I'm like, are you kidding yes. me? So, you, I mean, and I then Prince died without a will too. Baby, I can't, but, but baby, <laughs> but then also, you know, that Aretha, you know, had a, had a, had a son with special needs and did not write, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. something there to make sure that he was provided for. So like, what, like, what are we not seeing? Like as a community, like, what are we not seeing? We're not seeing generational wealth. I mean, we don't have the textbook for it, right? Because it's so new to us. And I'm talking about economic wealth. I mean, you know, Black people have all kinds of amazing wealth and that that we do pass down. And in terms of economic wealth, you know, when we look at how close um, situations like redlining are to us, you know, to history, how close, how, you know, how, um, how often we are not so um, houses and communities where we the the real estate values go up. I mean, the New York Times did a whole um, section on blacks and real estate this this past weekend, and it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, we also don't understand predatory lending, and you know, my mom bought the house in Bushwick for. Um, when she died, I think she owed like 250,000 on it. Like, and, and it was all about credit people coming in, knocking on doors. You know, I ended up long story, but take, taking the house over and I get calls every day from people like, do you want, can I buy that house from you? Or can't, you know, um, or do you want to take out another mortgage on that house? And it's like, I don't even know how they get my numbers and I'm an educated woman and, and my mom wasn't so much. So, so I just, and, and on that block on Madison street, I watched house by house by house get lost because of alcoholism, because, you know, because all these ways that people didn't understand that holding on to that home meant something for their children. Um, and, and I think that we just, we just don't know that yet because you know, we are money in the mattress people, right? We don't trust banks. We don't trust investments. Like, you know, what cryptocurrency? What are you talking about? Like, you know, we trust a nice car that people can look at and say, you got a nice car. Like, like it is, it is a mindset that, that we as a culture with economic power being so young are still learning. And, um, and trying to understand what it means for our children, right? You know, for my mother, her idea of um, wealth was setting me up to have a job with a pension. And maybe she could get me a job at Con Edison, I'd have a good retirement plan, right? Because that's what she had and that's what she knew as something that was more stable than picking cotton, right? So it's, it's, it's so interesting and heartbreaking. I think we are beginning to understand the importance of this. Um, and, and how to do it. Cause it even like um, having financial advisors, people think, oh, I don't have enough money to have a financial advisor or, oh, they're gonna take some of my money. I, I, I remember talking to writers about agents and black, uh, you know, I have black writer friends who are like, no, they're gonna take 15% of whatever I make. And I'm like, but they're going to get you 75% more than you would have made otherwise because there's a contract for people with no agent and there's a contract for people with agents. So, so but just beginning to understand that it's it doesn't mean something getting taken away. It means something eventually getting added. Also, 
thinking about how long we live, you know, and, and the, the death rate of black folks in, in regard to that of white folks and, and not having that long-term vision, right? Because of that, I'm not gonna always be here, but you know, the next step is let me think of my grandchildren and my children. And, you know, half the time we're like, no, if we leave them some, they're going to be trifling, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. it's such a complicated thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am lucky in that, like, my family is pretty solid, right? It's very, very nuclear, like mother, father, daughter, son dog got hit by a car, like a textbook, you know, live in the Midwest, 1950s wow. ranch track housing, like the, that song Little Boxes is definitely about like where I grew up. Um, but my parents still don't have a will. I'm like, they're like, I think we're going to go get one at Home Depot. I'm like, dad, okay, guys, come on. I love like, them. I, I love mean, them. guys, like, I mean, obviously, I mean, my sister and I are like, we're fine, but like, Please. So, okay. Sorry. So I'm going to shift to, to, to like the but tech. people oh. get crazy when people die. Oh, That's no, people do get crazy. Thing. Like fights start happening yeah, among siblings yeah, and like yeah. it's bananas. It's no death. Death is, is a whole thing. Um, but I want to quickly pivot to, um, like the, the writing, right? Like the technique of it. Um, so you are going to write a novel there is an underlying structure to this, right? Like, like kind of like a painting has an underpainting of like burnt umber that kind of gives a guideline. Like, how does one approach this task, this daunting task? Because I know that there's a lot of writers listening. I am someone who knows how to put a sentence together. I would not call myself a writer, but, you know, there are stories somewhere inside of me. I'm so sure there are. I mean, just from the questions you ask alone, I know there's so many stories in you. I, I, how do I get to the burnt umber? Um, or how do I get to the word, the, to the story on top? Um, so I always think of Anne Lamott, who said, you know, who wrote the book Bird by Bird, right? So a novel is just, I think of it as a string of pearls. And each pearl is its own little vignette and those vignettes strung together make the narrative and the narrative arc. So where does your what, what where does your story begin? With Red at the Bone, the first line in that story is, but that afternoon there was an orchestra playing. And what I knew when I wrote that, not that line was this story is starting not at the beginning, right? Because it wouldn't be starting with the word, but if it was the beginning. And so now I, I understand where I am and where I'm not in time. I'm not at the beginning, which means I can move around a lot in time. Um, and so that that's something, um, you know, you think I think about is where is it in time? And then what does my character want and how are they going to get it? That's the quintessential question of every single novel. And, and why is your story happening now? Like, what? why didn't you tell that story 10 years ago? Or why is that story not taking place in the future? And, and once you ask yourself those questions, like I knew Red at the Bone was happening now because, um, because um, um, it was Melody's um, coming of age ceremony like that you know that was the point that was going to start triggering people in all kinds of ways I knew um um another Brooklyn um was happening then because 
uh, her father, I think her father dies um, because she sees um, Sylvia on the train, right? She runs into Sylvia on the train and that triggers, that that starts, every, that starts the story being told. Now we gotta go back and find out why this situation is so triggering for her. Um, but, but those are the questions like, what's the trigger for the story? Um, and, and, and really going back to Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird, that, that title from that book of that book comes from her brother. He had all, he had a report on birds do, and he had all these bird, you know, biographies or whatever, and all just disorder. And his father was, and he was completely overwhelmed. His father said, take it bird by bird. And, and that's what a novel is. It's moment by moment by moment. And if you just write those moments and start figuring out where they go and where they tie together, you have your novel. And I think I don't like adjectives, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think adjectives are a waste of breath and time, like Ooh. in a way of, uh, and they, they tell, they don't show. Like give me, show me the picture, draw that picture on the page. Um, but but don't, don't try to use a whole lot of beautiful words because they just get in the way of the narrative moving forward. Mm, mm. Hope and, that helps. No, and that's how you keep your, 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 your writing so, so um, I don't want to say Spartan because that has like a negative connotation, but so lean, <laughs> like so lean, so efficient. Um, and, but, but like, like for like another Brooklyn, for example, like, and a lot of reviewers call your work impressionistic, which I think, you know, in, in the way in which you structure narrative, there is, there is this abstractness, there is this undulation of time, like time, I really feel the fourth dimension of time in your book, mm -hmm. if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, I really mm -hmm. feel that it is something as malleable as me, like, pressing into a marshmallow um, time. Um, and so when you're constructing something that is really going back and forth in time, and it's 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 beautiful in the way that you 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 write so leanly, so even when you start at one place and I'm, like, you know, three-fourths of the book in that finally references the place you actually started at. Like, I'm not so far away that I don't remember it. But like, you know, just like technically, like if you're writing this narrative arc of a protagonist, maybe that's starting at one point, but then slides back into another point, then like, there's gotta, like, are you like putting post-it notes on the wall? Like how, like, how are you keeping that timeline like straight? You know what I'm doing? I'm reading it out loud. You know, I'm reading it and rereading it. And, and in the reading out loud, I, it's like, wait a second, you know, five pages ago, something different was happening. And what does this have to do with that? You know, I and that's how I've always been oral that way. So it, it helps me flag stuff of that where where I, I'm not getting to the point. And we're in New Yorkers. I mean, we go off onto tangents and people who know New Yorkers trust us that we will come back to the story. Right. This is how we talk. This is how we were raised. Um, and so and so so I think of the it, of the writing is tangential and in that other things are happening. But then I, I promise I'm going to get back to that point I made here. Um, you know, that there's um, like the, the part you read where um, after Clyde, where the government takes the pecan trees like the, I've been referencing um, 
I've been referencing Tennessee throughout and you haven't been there except you see it once with a broken down house um, when they're all in that kitchen. And then I, you, a part of you knows at some point she's going to take you to the land. I need to see this land. I need to see this water. And what does this water have to do with anything? And what happened to the mother? Like, are these questions going to be answered? Um, so, so you as a reader might not know questions of building until they're answered. But me as a writer, as I'm reading it out loud, I'm like, wait a second, I'm going to have to deliver on that. And I'm going to have to deliver on that. And I think especially for newer writers, keep, keep your braids simple, right? Keep your threads simple. Because if you have a whole bunch of threads, every, every character that walks on that stage has to have a story and an ending. And when you look at something like um, um, Another Brooklyn, I think there are about 10 characters all together. That, that are characters that you are really invested in. And each of them from Clyde to the mother to the father's girlfriends, all of them have a beginning, middle and end. Um, and then they're gone. And once they're gone, you're free of them. And that, that story is over. Wow, that's amazing. And so, and, and kind of speaking about this concept of like, you know, impressionistic uh, writing and, you know, knowing that you also listen to music while you write, am I right in that? Like, was that research yes, right? Okay, yes. amazing. Like what yes. other disciplines inform the way in which you write, right? Like, you know, it's. I'm sure you're reading a lot, but there are other things that you're ingesting yeah. that shape the way in which you, you put text on a page. What are some of those? Uh, my headphones, I have to have my headphones on. I have to have a candle lit um, just for concentration. Um, I read a lot of poetry, poet, especially when I'm I'm feeling like my language, like right now I'm I'm trying to write a screenplay and um, in doing so, I have to I'm reading I'm listening to the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. That does not help with writing. Like like the like it's a fascinating story, but the language is very dry and and. And it's not very visual for me. So on a day when I'm writing creatively, I can't listen to something like that. I can, I can, you know, I can read Natalie Diaz. I can read um, Tim Siebel's. I, you know, I can, I can hit the poetry, but I cannot listen to like autobiography or anything like, unless it's The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, because that, that audiobook is so beautifully written and beautifully read that it, it's very, very lyrical and it's very um, visual. So I can actually, if I'm writing a piece that's about the past, that helps me get into that, that um, place in the past where I knew people had outhouses, not flush toilets. And, and, you know, and there was lots of land and not buildings interrupting and bigger sky. And, and so I can, I can kind of craft my narrative, um, a little more realistically around that. And, and in terms of the impressionistic writing, like, I think that's a really good point. Um, I forgot that people said that about my work, but you really, um, you don't need a lot of detail because your reader is meeting you halfway, right? So like, I don't need to know that you have um, 
a black shirt, unless that black shirt is something someone gave you and is gonna come back into the narrative somehow. Like why give me that specific detail if it doesn't have anything to do with the narrative? Unless you wear black all the time, then you give it to me once and I, you know, and, and I know you wear black all the time and then I don't need to know it's black because you told me that, right? So, um, or he was wearing black again, of course, right? So. It, it, it's very, um, so those kind of things, I think writing and writing's a muscle, right? The more you use it, the more, the stronger it gets. So I, I do try to write every day, but, but I do try to pay attention to what detail is important to the narrative and what is not. And so if I were to ask you to describe Sylvia right now, um, would you be, you might be able to describe her eyes, maybe a little bit about her skin tone. You wouldn't be able to tell me what she's wearing, but or when you tell me what she's wearing, it's what the other four, other three girls are also wearing because they dress alike sometimes. So, so, and that was, a, and, and we see them all at one height because, you know, Augie says that was the year we all grew to the same height. Um, and that's important because I wanted to visually show you the, how similar these girls, you know, what kind of, how similar and how they created a barricade against the world, including in their height and stature. First of all, it's so funny as you speak. I'm here with my uh, <laughs> candle, <laughs> my so candle burning. For for you guys listening, I I always also have a candle burning. It's it's kind of a for me. It's 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 about purification in a way like it's um mm -hmm. it's a bit of a spiritual practice in like mm -hmm. constantly like burning out like those corners right and like like transmuting yes. the shadow um mm -hmm. and so it's kind of there is that reminder of like that inner fire um that's constantly like purifying um those things that are are, are keeping me from like my next version of myself. Um, so <laughs> not, not to go. It, actually, what are, like, do you have any spiritual practices? Like, do, do, like what is like your morning routine? Like, I mm -hmm. mean, I know you mentioned, you know, the candle and the headphones, but like, like what, like you wake mm -hmm. up and what happens? Like, like. Um, the, the first thing I do is I thank God for another day. I mean, that's always, and, and for keeping my family safe. And I thank the universe and I thank the ancestors. Um, uh, and that's like just kind of meditative before I get out of the bed to just, um, acknowledge that I'm here another day. Um, and, um, you know, I always think of Audre Lorde who said we should wake up knowing we have work to do and go to, be, go to bed knowing we've done that work. And I've, I don't always do that work, but I do wake up knowing I have work to do. Uh, so I acknowledge that. And then I, you know, I get up. I, I have been staying up really late, um, like till 2 a.m., 3 a.m., sometimes working, sometimes hanging with my son, who's 13 now. He's, um, you know, because I found in this pandemic, we've had, we, you know, we didn't grow, we haven't watched television, right, all these years. And then we discovered, he, you know, he turned me on to the office. And then from the office, um, we started watching um, uh, Cobra Kai or something, but it became this real bonding thing between us. And, and then I, we just watched um, um, In Treatment, but only the episodes with this 12 year old black boy. Because uh, I'm trying to get him in treatment, but also because um, because it was it was really interesting to watch this 12 year old black boy negotiate two black parents getting a divorce, and and we had these such interesting conversations around it. Um, so, but then he goes to bed, and, and I write. You know, I try to get some work done. And one thing about writing at night is, you know, no one's going to interrupt you; they're all asleep. So you got 
hours and hours. Um, but then that meant that has meant sleeping sometimes till 10 o'clock, except sometimes I get up earlier than that. Anyway, I get up my, you know, I take my dogs out and um, run around a bit with them. But but I really tried to get to my writing desk, you know, by 11 or noon and, and really start thinking about my writing day but um but the candle gets lit you know the coffee gets made the the head is around the projects and um and today is tuesday on tuesdays and wednesdays um my family's back in the city so i have the house to myself so and this is all pandemic we're in pandemic times until september 13th when school starts back and then we go back to me um, getting up at six o'clock in the morning. My my partner and son leave by 7.30 because my son goes to school on the Upper West Side. And then, and then I have from 7.30 to like five o'clock to just create. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm working on a bunch of projects. I'm working on screenplays. I'm a fellow at the Kennedy Center. I, you know, have a book due. Like there are a lot of things that I can fill that day working on. But really it's, it's the trying to, Sing, figure out the world I'm going into. You know, am mm. I going into the world that these characters are those characters? You know, and that's actually a really good point because I know, you know, as we've continued through the pandemic, I was going to say, you know, come through a pandemic. We're continuing through a pandemic. You know, a lot of us have, you know, quit jobs, you know, picked up side jobs, especially being able to, you know, work from home or work remotely, you know, and so many people listening have multiple projects at one time mm. that are due and you have to make sure you get them done. There's no one yes. else yes. on you. So like, how do you, how do you structure that? Like, do you like put it into a calendar? Do you have like a to-do list? Like, like how do you just structure your myriad of projects? I'm, I'm asking for a friend. Um, how do you keep it all together and like really just show up and work? Oh man, you know? I'd be dropping balls left and right. But I, I last week I, I have an assistant and I, I said, can you just send me a list of the writing projects that I do? And she, I didn't even open the email. I was like, thanks for doing that, but whatever. And and the way they, you know, so so much, so so what she does is she'll text me. She's like, your Hans Christian Anderson speech is due by three o'clock today. It's five days late. I'm like, okay, okay, I'm on it. So, or you know, your scribe P, your essay was, um, you told her you get that to her by whatever. And um, I remember my friend Mo saying, um, you know, that they he has a, a a reminder that he gets once a month to do his work, it's called the mortgage bill. Ah. <laughs> so, um, but but I do, I, I really, it, it's people now in the pandemic, it's people saying this is due. Let me put this in front of your eyes again. Um, so I'm working on a screenplay um, and I have a book due at the end of the month and a nonfiction book. And so that is that that those are the two things I'm working on for the rest of the week. Um, and and I, I have a sense of what projects are kind of due, but then things come up like that Hans Christian Anderson speech that I forgot I had to write. Um, but but I really have in the back of my mind a sense of what's due and um, I know who's going to be yelling at me if I don't get it done. So, and you know, I have editors. I have my my 
young people's editor. I have my adult editor. And once in a while, they'll check in. And it's like, oh, am I seeing the book this week? Or am I seeing it? And it's like next week and next, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But I do think, you know, economics can be an incentive. Also, I know as, as a writer, I mean, people with project, like it sits on your brain. Like there's this kind of egging in the back of your brain. That's like, you know, that's due, you know, that's due. And until you get it done, you don't get that space open up, right? It just, it just sits there. So I really don't like that feeling. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm personally um, aligning myself with the freedom of what it would be like to have that project done <laughs> because yes, I know, exactly. you know, because I love that feeling, you know, when you're done and mm -hmm. you're just like, ah, like I'm trying to align yeah. myself with that feeling. And it's like, you have the time do this now. Like, you know, mm -hmm. at, sometimes procrastination is a really great creative motivator, you know, <laughs> like it will just force the stuff out, which is great. But like, I just don't want, I just, I'm not trying to stress myself out like that because what I, but what I love, what I value more is freedom, the freedom it's to be so present, true. you know, the freedom to be present mm -hmm. and the freedom to be yeah. in the moment. So these things are not constantly weighing on you. Yeah. And I have ever, I have Monday, I've slack, I have paid for all of the, you know, tools to help you. And they just sit there. You know, I look Wait, at it. Wait, what's Monday? Monday. To, okay. First of all, I can't tell you everything about it because they're not sponsoring this. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can email me. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but Monday.com is like, it's like Asana. It's like one of those like project management tools that's, oh. um, but it's overpriced. I'm going to say that. Oh, okay. But, I, but, it, and the design is good though. And for me, Maybe for me. Sponsor some people like you. Any, like, any, you should be getting that for free. Come on, come on, come, come on. on. But for me, yeah. anything like I just need it to look pretty and then I can use it. Like it's aesthetics first for me. Like yes. if the pen ain't cute, I'm not writing. If like I'm just I, it's all about like aesthetics. OK, but anyway, <laughs> slight pivot <Great>. <laughs> like uh, and I, I and thank you so much. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just have a couple I'm, I'm of other good. questions. Um, but like thinking about the characters, you said something really beautiful at the end of another Brooklyn. Um, I'm going to call it the postlude, the postlog, like, you know, mm -hmm. just sharing your story of what it was like to write it. Um, and you said creating a novel means moving into the past, the hoped for, the imagined. It is an emotional journey fraught at times with characters who don't always do or say what a writer wishes. And then kind of skipping to the end, you say, I guess in many ways, the character, or the characters a writer creates have always existed somewhere. And first of all, thank you for just including in your book a part of your process. I think a lot of times people, you know, books just kind of sit in a void and I'm like, how did the, what was the writer thinking about this? You know, mm -hmm. I know what their peers think about it, right? In the, in the, in the, the, the foreword, but like, what, what did the writer think about this? But this concept of the character existing outside of you, outside of your consciousness, what, does that feel like like what is that process like like is it do you do you see it as like a channeling where do these characters exist for you and how do they come forward it's so interesting because i think it's 
it's both. It's the voices outside of your head, right? It's the voices inside your head that are coming from somewhere outside, right? Um, and it's inside of you. So I think every character I put on a page has some Jacqueline Woodson in them. Like, you know, I, and I never, um, I'm, I, I never want to be too conscious of where I live inside my character. I think that's when writers begin to overthink it and, and then the character falls flat. So take someone like Sabi. I'm sure there's some, you know, auntie in me that is in Sabi. I'm sure there's some of my grandmother in Sabi. Um, I'm sure there is something from maybe what I read on Zula or, you know, um, or Bluest Eye in Sabi. I'm sure there's some poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks in Sabi. And I don't, and, and the truth is, I don't know how Sadie got to the page, but I know she's there and, and she works as a character. And so um, it, I think the, my rule of thumb is walk through the world with your eyes open, right? Like, you know, feel the world. Like I, I actually have this deep fragility when I'm in public, right? So if I see someone slap their kids, like, I'm ready to cry. Like, like there's stuff that really hurts my heart in the world. And, and, and so I have to be kind of self-protective when I'm like, I, when I was in the middle of book back in the day before I had eye surgery, I would um, go, I wouldn't wear my glasses when I went out and I, my eyes were jacked up, but, but I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to take in too much of the world. Um, and when I sit down with those characters, I am really thinking, Again, what does Sabi want? But I already hear her. She's already she's already been with me all my life in some way, and I think that's what writers need to know. I think we get kind of um, caught up in the uncertainty and and the doubt, right? And and knowing that those characters are with you relieves some of that doubt, relieves some of that imposter syndrome, or all the things that relieves some of that quote unquote writer's block, the stuff that we we carry that keeps us from telling that story. And so if you ask me where Sylvia came from, I could say she kind of reminds me of a friend in high school, but she also kind of reminds me of me in high school, but she also kind of reminds me of, you know, something I dreamed of. Like, so it's, it, it, it's really hard to narrow it down and, and you can't until you start writing it, right? Because <laughs> when you start writing those characters, then you have to decide what they want and who they are. Um, and you're culling from all of that stuff that is inside, outside, you know, that's coming through, down your brain, down your arm and out your hand. But, um, but at, you're also letting the unknown sit there and, and being comfortable with it. Like, and I, I always think, you know, so many writers in another lifetime, we might've been institutionalized, right? Somebody might've been like, if we didn't have the tools to get these voices out of our heads and onto the page, someone would have been like, you need to go away for a little while. And, you know, let me give you some medication. But, um, but I also think it's part of the reason, you know, so many writers drank so much or tried to obliterate themselves in these ways was because it's a lot to carry. It's a lot to carry all of this information, all of these voices. I think of um, Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost, right? Um, and, and all these um, spirits outside of her trying to get into her body. And she's like, stop. <laughs> like, and, and for me, I think the way that I get those voices out of my head and those stories onto the page is lots of discipline, right? Lots of concentration and lots of intentionality. Like, like this, I'm going to channel this into a narrative 
that's not just speaking to me, but speaking to lots of people. Because then you as a reader is like, I know that story. This is familiar to me, right? Back to the mirrors and windows. Like, yeah, she gets me in some way because I don't think this is something, I think this, when I put it on the page, we realize this is something so many of us share, not just something I have, but I've chosen to take this particular story and put it on the page in this particular way. Yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, as you speak, I'm, 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 really feeling like this sense of fragility um and like a porous nature almost like a like a um yeah um a, a porous membrane through which you know these 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 stories these histories kind of come through you which is why you know you don't want to see so clearly yep. which i'm sure in some way has affected the way in which you write because it is not about these adjectives, right? Because to see clearly would, would, would allow for like these adjectives and you're like getting at the essence of the thing, like getting to the mm -hmm. core of it. Um, but then also wondering, you know, in writing through death, right? With, with nine 11 and understanding that, that there are spirits, there are energies, there are forces that are not outside of you right? Mm -hmm. They are within you, right? Because to have an inside, there actually has to be an outside. To have an outside, there has to be an inside. So it's kind of this like Mobius strip-like dance we're doing, you know, in this illusion of, you know, separateness. And that's mm -hmm. a whole other, you know, kind of conversation. But, you know, seeing the importance of, 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 the, of the craft of writing, um, of the ability to put, you know, text to a page, but, you know, for me, pulling back and understanding that that's a design element. You know, mm -hmm. I think of design or I define design as just technology to bring thought into space time. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and you actually that actually brings up a quote that you had in The New York Times um, about, um, you know, young adult literature, right, that exists in classrooms. And you said, you know, I'll look at a class makeup and it and it will be all of these kids of color and they'll have all of these books with no people of color in them. And I'm like, come on, is it just by accident or by design that you're not letting the literature reflect your young people? What's your answer? Do you feel that this is happenstance or is this by design? I think, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's, people not being thoughtful about the kids in their class and not understanding how important it is that the literature reflect the young people. I think it is, you know, this idea that whiteness is universal um, and therefore this white literature must speak to everybody. Uh, I think it's that people, I, I think it's changed a lot because there's so much dialogue about the importance of diverse literature in the classroom. Um, and, and of course, with that comes the pushback of diverse literature, which people are calling, you know, quote unquote, anti-CRT, which is, you know, it's whole other podcast because it's just craziness. But um, so I think it's a lot of things. I think as teachers you know, do the work and become more aware of 
the needs of their students. Like, and I see that, say this again and again, you have to see your students. Like you have to see, look at your, you can't say, I don't see color. That's a lie, right? You have to see your students and know who they are and understand what they need. And that's not hard because if you don't know them, make the literature diverse, right? <laughs> you know, if you do know them, make the literature diverse. It answers the question, like, you know, all, all Johnny wants is a book with a, um, with a kid whose father's incarcerated. All someone wants is a book, you know, where they live in a shelter. And like all these books are out there and going back to what we were talking about earlier, like, you know, it, it, it gets them out of the bubble or out of this idea that theirs is the only experience like that, um, which, which can be heartbreaking for some young people. Mm, yeah. And, 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 you know, on, on one level, it's hard to not view it through the lens of something that is designed, right? That is premeditated. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a slight side note. I did a job at the Met Museum. And so we were able to be there by ourselves, like literally an empty Met Museum for wow. like two days, which is amazing. And nice. when the people are gone and we're, we were like in the American wing, you know, with all these portraits and whatever. And you're like, this is so white like and not only that like also knowing that all of these were decided upon someone Mm -hmm. decided that this is what of american culture was worth saving Mm -hmm. was worth Mm -hmm. revering right and there's something to seeing this reified over and over on walls and these are i'm looking at these Painting these are basic ass people. I mean, yeah, I guess they had mon- money enough to have a painting, but that does not justify 150 yes. years later me being a small black kid. I need to know who you are, and I and mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. are literally visually higher than me, and in this place, right, wow. in this space. Like, do you know what I mean? And and to have exactly. that reified over and over and over mm-hmm. and over mm-hmm. and over and over and over again, like yeah. you start to see that. You know, like any technology, we design it and then it designs us. And so mm-hmm. even even if it's not in even if it's not your intention to, there needs to be an understanding that there is a reciprocal relationship that is between us and the things that we design and or create. Um, and that mm-hmm. it becomes a exactly. feedback loop that that pushes towards a reality because you know we watch mm-hmm. a TV show which helps us understand. I think what love looks like. And so then we begin to behave like that when we're in this Mm -hmm. relationship. And so there is this constant like back and forth, you know, and design Mm -hmm. is that lever, like design is that mechanism. Um, Anyway. (laughs) So really quickly, speeding up to like the future, like, and the present, you mentioned some screenplays what's happening? Like, what are you most excited about? Like what, what, what is like getting you up every morning full of like joy? Uh, I think, um, the thing that I'm excited about, um, the series, we're doing a series with Shonda Land based on behind you, which is the um, book I talked about, about the, um, kid who comes back as a ghost, um, Mm. after dying. Um, and I'm re I'm doing some rewriting on that today. I, you know, wrote the screenplay for red at the bone. So, um, I'm excited to see that in the world one day. Naima Ramos Chapman, who I love a lot is, um, directing it. Um, and, um, 
you know, I have picture books coming out next year that I'm excited about. I'm excited about my residency at the Kennedy Center. I'm excited about um, working on this nonfiction book that I'm still figuring out. So I'm not even trying to talk about it. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm just excited about being given another day to write. So. Hey, and so and so like, I mean, thank thank you. Like, first of all, again, thank you for this time that you spent with us. You know there's like a list of awards. There's like, you know, a shelf full of books. Um, there is like the house in Brooklyn, your mother's house, the house upstate, the two kids, the partner. What is like the life that you want to live, right? Like what is the good life? Like what does that mean to you? <laughs> um, so today... <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I am happiest when I'm around my family and my extended family, biological and chosen. Um, and we're just hanging out and talking and, and you know, drinking wine and, and, and the day feels limitless. Like that's when, and, and you know, and I'm not stressing about work. That's when uh, I feel the most whole um and 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 just you know kind of the world drops away I feel like um you know I don't know if you know but I'm working on Baldwin for the Arts which is an artist residency for um people of the global majority who are composers um visual artists and um and writers and and I feel like when I'm doing that work in terms of thinking about a future where I'm not here but the the, the artists are continuing to be able to thrive in a safe environment. Um, that's when I feel like, you know, I think about being a, when I ran track in college and you had these, you know, it's like what's attainable, what's um, less attainable, but still attainable and what sky's the limit. For me, that feels like sky's the limit joy, right? It's like being able to have left something here for others that, that matters. Um, so, so I think it's aggravating. It's a pain in the ass every day to talk to architects and try to figure out how to pay for this and all of that stuff. Um, and at the end of the day, like when I sit and imagine people just sitting and talking and creating art and learning and collaborating and you know changing the world through art, which I believe happens. Um, then I, I feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's beautiful. Like I love I love that that it's really the the addendum of of a different type of service that mm. allows for this kind of um, uncapped, no cap joy, right? Yes. <laughs> Unbridled that like extends beyond you know our lifetime. Um, and so before I ask the the last question. Um, I do want to take this time to just acknowledge you for writing into that void, for writing, you know, the stories that, you know, me, like a young queer black kid, you know, in this religious family in the Midwest really needed, you know, I had the Hardy Boys, right? And and because of you, there are young um, individuals that look like me, um, who move through the world like me, who can see themselves um, not 
not only like be a mirror, right, but also like a window and a portal into another way of being um, so that we don't feel so alone. And that, you know, even though we come through uh, oral history uh, people, that you have decided to make a mark like in the rock, like that you've chosen to pick up the chisel instead um, and to leave something behind for generations to come. You know, when I think about the people we remember, it's the writers, right? That's that's the immortality. Mm -hmm. It's the words on the page. It's the stories that you've channeled. Um, And so just humbly like, thank you. It's just a pleasure to chat with you. And I look forward to chatting you chatting with you in person one day um, yes. and actually like, you know, skin to skin. Um, and you spoke, oh, a, you spoke a little bit. Awesome. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. I have faith. It's coming. Well, I have loved every question you've asked me. This has been such a joy to talk to you and thank you for being so brilliant and so present and so you know, thoughtful about your question. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Um, so you spoke a little bit about this, um, I think with Baldwin for the arts, but, but really like, what is the world you imagine for the future? (laughs) Um, oh my goodness. That's such a good question. It's, it's so hard to not be in this present right now, because this present is just in some ways like Groundhog Day, right? (laughs) Just the same day over and over. And when we break through this portal of a present, um, I I think it's here, I think it's coming. I mean, my joy is the young people who continue to say we're not leaving this jacked up world for our grandchildren, the way you left it for us. Everything from, you know, um, again, gender to pronouns to sexuality. Um, It was so interesting. I was talking to my son um, when when he was around 11 and he was on a schoolyard and a kid had called another kid a faggot. And he, and my son said to him, "Um, that's homophobic. You, You can't say that. That's not a nice word. And the kid's like, well, what does it mean? Like he just knew it was a bad word, but had no idea. And I'm like, this is, this is good. This is the beginning of change because he doesn't even know what this word means. And, and it's on its way to being erased as a derogatory word. And, and just that, um, you know, um, you know, when I mispronounce someone and the way my young people come for me and they're like, you know, they're a they. And it's like, okay, you know, like they're, and they can be, the most closed-minded of kids and they're not, t- you know, you're going to respect pronouns. You're going to respect sexuality. You're going to respect race. Like there are these ways in which this a generation coming up is having none of what peeps try to leave them. And that makes me really hopeful. I mean, you know, I know they, they're mad at us for the fires and the floods and all that stuff. But at the same time, like they, the walls that people started breaking down, um, they, they're like those walls are staying down and, and we are, we are going to fix a lot of stuff before we leave here. So I see a future where people in terms of their own bodies 
feel safer. Even the Me Too movement. I mean, the fact that young girls, I, I, I remember having to walk through middle school and have guys touch my butt, right? And, and be so ashamed by it. And it was called ass grabbing, right? And it was just something that guys did. And, and when I told um, my nieces and my daughter, they're like, are you kidding me? Like people allow this to, are you kidding? And they will cut somebody, like the stuff that got allowed is no longer getting allowed. And they, you know, in a minute, they are ready to change the world or, or to fight someone or to call someone out and with, with you know, no embarrassment, no, no shyness at all around it. So I'm very excited. I feel, I feel safer knowing that our young people are there. Not like they're here to take care of me. I just, I just feel safer knowing that the world is changing. Absolutely. Okay. Now, now, just a small guilty pleasure. Before we go, give me top five writers, like like rap style. Like, who's your top five? Who's in your top five? Oh God. <laughs> okay. A rapping cost Lewis, Tanahasi Coates, uh, uh, James Baldwin. Oh goodness, I got two more. Um, oh man, Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, and I would say uh, Natalie Diaz. Okay. I'm surprised James Baldwin. That's this week. Yeah. I'm like, James Baldwin, you don't like adjectives? Okay. <laughs> and, and you know you know what's so funny about James Baldwin? I skip over them. I, I skip over his adjectives. Like, if you if I look at, if Bill Street could talk, I don't remember a single adjective. I remember the baby cries and cries. Like, you know, like big chunks of it where I just see the moment and, and yeah, another country, what that book would be about, you know, 150 pages shorter if I wrote it. But at the same time, I see them sitting in the living room on the Upper West Side with their bourbon. I, I you know, I, I, I see the mood of it and, and the way he put characters on the page in just regular situations and took his time with that. And so I'm here for that. But yeah, I can skip over his adjectives. <laughs> Okay, amazing. Delete, delete, delete. So, <laughs> well, uh, Jacqueline Woodson edits James Baldwin. Ooh, 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 I kind of like that. Uh, oh my God, we don't, we don't have book remixes like that. You know what I mean? Like how they remix music? Like that'd be dope. Like this is like, yeah. this is like the Woodson remix. Like I love yes. that. Okay, anyway, let me stop. All right, have a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. Thank you again. You it was too. an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to meet in person. Thank you again. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. These conversations are so rich for me, and I learned so much, and I hope you do too. But what stood out to you? Let us know over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination, and share with just one or two friends you think would really enjoy this content. Writing is such a beautiful practice. It not only allows us to work out the thoughts in our head, but also gives us a way to share those ideas with others as well. We are all storytellers. Stay curious and keep dreaming.